Hey guys, and welcome back to Murdered and Missing. I'm your host, Nicole, and I do have a little bit of business to dive into this week. The first thing is I'm trying out a new setup and a new um, editing audio software type deal. So if you guys could shoot me a message on Instagram or shoot me a message on Facebook and let me know how things are sounding this week, if there's less background noise, etc. I'm really trying to make it sound better for you guys. Okay, so now that that's out of way, out of the way, excuse me, um, my second piece of business is that I have been working with a creator on Etsy, and I'll go ahead and drop her shop in the show notes, um, but she has designed a super cool um, SVG for me, and I am going to be making some decals and eventually some stickers that have my cute little tag that says stay spooky and be a good human. If you guys are wanting to purchase those, you can find out how to purchase them in my Facebook group, Murdered and Missing, a true crime podcast discussion group. And that's all the business I have for you. Let's get into it. The story I have for you today is actually my first listener suggestion, and it is from Ashley. So thank you, Ashley. And this story involves some of the wildest, like theories, not series, excuse me, that I have seen to date. Um, Those theories include being eaten by bears, um, being eaten by feral pigs, and probably the most outlandish theory that I've seen so far was that this boy was kidnapped and consumed by cannibalistic feral humans. And the source material for this week is being taken directly from the National Park Service, and it is the chronological narrative of the search report. So it's pretty in-depth, and I do expect this Um, episode to be a little bit longer. And today, we're actually going to be discussing one of the Park Service's most extensive searches, and that is of the disappearance of Dennis Lloyd Martin from the Great Smoky Mountains. Father's Day weekend is a weekend most dads like to spend with their kids. And that was no different for William Martin, his son Douglas, and his father, Clyde Martin. You see, for generations dating back over half a century, the Martin men came to Spence Field in the Cades Cove area of the Great Smoky Mountains to till the soil every spring. But the ground no longer needed tending, But that didn't stop the members of the Martin family from returning to the area and introducing future generations to the long-standing tradition of hiking and camping in Cades Cove. When William's youngest son, Dennis, was born on June 20th, 1962, he was excited to introduce him to the family tradition, and that introduction would come on Father's Day weekend of 1969. The trip would be the first time that Dennis would attend the overnight camping portion. But it wasn't the first time that Dennis was in these mountains. Since Dennis was a baby, he was strapped to the backs of his parents as they hiked the trails, and he spent a majority of his childhood 
in and around the Smoky Mountains. On June 13, 1969, the Martin family would set out on their first hike. Six-year-old Dennis would keep up with his more experienced family members, and everything went smoothly. That evening, the family would arrive at the Russell Field Shelter, where they planned to camp for that night. In the following morning, on June 14, 1969, the family would wake up and complete the final two to two and a half miles of their journey to Spence Field, where they planned on camping for the rest of the trip. In some sources, I did see that it was listed as two miles, and others said two and a half, which is why I included that two to two and a half um, portion. Now, the adults in the group, when they got to Spence Field, kind of gathered in this grassy spot on the southwest corner of the field. And the southwest corner was by Anthony Creek Trailhead. And they watched as the group's children played. Now, it wasn't just Douglas and Dennis in the group. Um, William's brother actually came up from Alabama to join William and Clyde on the camping trip. And in one of the sources that I read for this week, they were referred to as the Alabama Martins. And so they had cousins that were also on this camping trip with them. Now, as the adults watched as the children played, the children decided that they were going to play a prank on their parents and they were going to go run off into the trees surrounding the field and they were going to uh, sneak up and try and scare their parents. Now, William, however, is not going to be frightened by his boys' plans. And that's because William could hear the boys, quote, whispering about their plans. And if you have any experience with children, especially children who are just having a good old time playing and laughing, they generally can't whisper, which is probably why William was able to hear Douglas and Dennis's plans. Now, Douglas and the two other boys that were in the group went south away from the Anthony Creek trailhead, and then they were going to circle back up the west side towards the adults. Dennis, however, is going to go northwest, and he goes off by himself, and it wouldn't be long before the older boys jumped out and tried to scare their parents. However, Dennis never jumps out. So let's take a minute and talk about Spence Field. So Spence Field actually has the state line of Tennessee and North Carolina running between it, and it runs along the Appalachian Trail. And if you're familiar with the Appalachian Trail, they have shelters along the trail. And the Russell Shelter happens to be the first shelter that the family stayed at on June 13th. And that's, like I said, about two to two and a half miles away from their current location in Spence Field. And it's approximately five miles away from the Derrick Knob shelter. And there are four other trails that run off of Spence Field. And I want to give you guys 
this visual because all of these trails and these shelters are going to be important later on in the story. So now that we have a little bit more background on Spence Field and just how easily it could have been for Dennis to get confused or something or someone to sneak up on Dennis, um, let's go back to the moment that the boys jump out. So Dennis, like I said, doesn't jump out with the rest of the group. So within a couple of minutes, they begin calling for him, thinking that maybe Dennis kind of just wandered off just a little bit too far and could no longer hear the group. So it'd be it would be roughly between three to five minutes that would pass by before William's daddy senses kicked in and he immediately knew something was wrong. So when Dennis went off into the woods surrounding Spence Field, he was wearing a bright red t-shirt, which would have been easily seen through the green foliage. And this is why the older boys were like, no, Dennis, you go off by yourself. You go that way. We'll go this way. You know, older boys, just kids being kids, you know, they, they want to go through with this prank and they don't want Dennis to spoil it. And nobody thinks that anything bad is going to happen. So they're, they're looking for this bright red t-shirt and they're calling for him and they're listening for him and they can't see this red t-shirt. They don't hear him. And this is when all of the adults in the group begin to realize the severity of the situation. So after realizing that he no longer can see his son's shirt, he is not responding, you know, and William's calling out, Clyde's calling out, and other various family members are calling out, and Dennis is still not responding. William is going to head west on the Appalachian Trail, and he's going to head towards Little Bald, which is about a mile away from Spence Field off of one of those four other um, trails. After going that way and not finding Dennis, William's going to head back towards Spence Field, wondering if maybe Dennis was on a different trail or maybe Dennis has gotten back to the group because he can finally hear them calling for him. However, once William gets back to Spence Field, he realizes that Dennis has not made it back and William is going to set out again. And this time he's going to cover roughly three miles of trails searching for his son. Now, some reports do say that he disappeared roughly around 5.30 p.m. Now, around 7.30 p.m., a naturalist, which I had to look this up because I wasn't sure what that was. A naturalist is someone who studies the natural world. Um, so this naturalist, Terry Chilcott, and his wife are actually going to arrive at Spence Field after hiking in. So the only way to get into Spence Field is to hike in or to drive in. And Terry and his wife hiked in. So once they get in, they're going to learn about Dennis's disappearance from uh, family members. And they tell, you know, the family members that are still at the field that they have not seen anything and they did not see anything um, or hear anything, excuse me. So in order to get to Spence Field, Terry and his wife had to drive up a road called Boat Mountain Road and then hike into Spence Field. So while driving up, um, they actually run across William and they end up driving him, excuse me, driving out, not driving up. 
is when they come across William. And they drive William to the junction of Boat Mountain Road and Laurel Creek Road, which is the main road that leads into Cades Cove where the ranger station is. Now, roughly an hour later at 8.30 p.m., Clyde, if you remember, is uh, Dennis's grandfather. He actually arrives at the Cades Cove Ranger Station to get assistance from park rangers in helping look for Dennis. Now, these two rangers that are there are Ranger Huffman and Ranger Nielsen. Ranger Nielsen then notifies dispatch at park headquarters about the missing boy. Dispatch then advises Chief Ranger Seddon and the North District Ranger Morris. And after noting dispatch, the two rangers, that's Ranger Huffman and Ranger Nielsen, they're actually going to set out and begin assisting in the search for Dennis. So Ranger Huffman is actually going to travel up to Russell Field on foot. And then he's going to hike east towards Spencefield and he's looking for any sign of Dennis and at the same time that um, Ranger Huffman is out looking Ranger Nielsen is actually going to pick up William from where uh, the Chilcots had dropped him off at um, the junction and they're going to drive up to Spencefield. Now like I said earlier there's only two ways to really access Spencefield and that's by driving up Boat Mountain Road in a truck and then hiking the one and a half miles in to um, Spence Field. Or you can drive up in a Jeep and do um, kind of like off-roading to get in. And that's how Ranger Nielsen and William got up into Spence Field. They went in the Jeep, so they cut out that need to hike. So with the Jeep, it kind of gives them a little bit more uh, access to getting up there quicker. And during this drive, Ranger Nielsen and William would come across um, hikers and every hiker that they passed, they asked, you know, hey, did you see a little boy in a red shirt? He's in a red shirt, he's got green shorts on, and he's wearing Oxford style loafer shoes. And they came across some hikers who were coming, <clears throat> excuse me, from Derrick Knob, that shelter that is about five miles away. And those hikers didn't see Dennis. They talked to a fisherman who walked from Hazel Creek. He didn't see Dennis. And then they talked to more hikers. Those hikers didn't see Dennis. And finally, they come across some hikers who had come west on the Appalachian Trail, and even they didn't see Dennis. As day turned to night, a thunderous storm would roll in, and it ends up dropping three inches of rain on the Smoky Mountains. It dropped the temperatures into the 50s, and it severely hampered the search for Dennis. This rainstorm would wash away all evidence that could have told searchers which direction Dennis could have traveled in. But for the rest of the evening, the rangers that were there and family members would search the immediate vicinity for Dennis. And the following morning on June 15th at 5 a.m., Chief Ranger Seddon would set up the following search plan. One 30-man crew consisting of five leaders, 10 crews of two to four men with 10 leaders, they would set up a home base at Spence Field and obtain a helicopter if possible. 
Park rangers then co contacted the Sevier County Rescue Squad, Blount County Rescue Squad, the Smoky Mountain Hiking Club, and local military bases to set up these crews. 240 individuals from these various um, clubs and squads would show up and they would be directed to Boat Mountain Road where they had kind of like a meeting place and they would begin to help look for Dennis. Now National Park Service employees and other experienced persons would then search down the west prong of Little River, Anthony Creek, Little Bald, and Spencefield drainage areas to see if maybe Dennis was along one of these areas. And Ranger Phillips, who would show up on Jan or excuse me, June 15th, would then travel up Eagle Creek Trail to Spence Field to search because this was the only trail that was not searched on June 14th. Two ho horse parties also went up Anthony Creek. One was headed towards Spence Field and the other went towards Ledbetter Ridge Trail and that was the trail that headed towards Russell Field. Now along the west prong of the Pigeon River, two searchers would actually find a child-sized shoe print um, like the Oxford type shoe that Dennis was last seen wearing. Now, an article by Knoxville News Sentinel reported that this lead was not thoroughly followed up on because searchers had already been in the area. Um, I don't understand why they wouldn't want to search this area, even though it was previously searched. So with that in mind, you know, could this be this shoe print be because Dennis is somehow in front of searchers? And that's why they didn't see it the night before. Or was Dennis taken by someone and they knew how to avoid search parties and they were in front of the search party and that's where the shoe print came from. I honestly believe that they did a disservice in finding Dennis by not following up on this shoe print. I, I don't know. Um... A Boy Scout troop consisting of 30 members who were camping at Derrick Knob heard of the missing boy and they hiked west on the Appalachian Trail to Spence Field and they began looking for Dennis. And eight Boy Scouts who were camped at Russell Field then hiked down to the Jenkins Ridge Trail looking for any signs of Dennis. Now Ranger Nichols would reach out to the Ranger School located in Lake City, Florida um, because they actually had 51 Ranger students in the area. And Ranger Nichols would ask if those students could be directed to Cades Cove from Franklin, North Carolina and aid in the search. On June 16th, 1969, the search would continue as members from the Tennessee National Guard would arrive and continue searching the trails and the drainage areas off of Spence Field. The Tennessee Air National Guard sent Captain Warren Burgess as a liaison officer for the National Park Service in all helicopter operations. 500 Special Forces members from Fort Bragg, North Carolina would also show up to aid in the search. This included roughly 60 to 70 Green Berets. Um, news outlets would also begin covering the search efforts at this time, and this would prompt more volunteers to begin to call into headquarters to see if they could assist in any way. 
And of those volunteers that called in, some of them were dog handlers. And they would end up bringing in their bloodhounds to see if maybe the bloodhounds could pick up Dennis's scent. And unfortunately, it had rained about two times since Dennis had disappeared. I know for sure it rained the night he disappeared. And in some articles, it did say that it rained again on the 15th. So that probably dampered um, the dog's noses. And that's why they could not get any, you know, scent of where Dennis could have possibly gone. Now, June 17th, helicopters would actually take to the sky to search for Dennis, and they would get up there around 11 a.m., and this would be because there was some ground fog, and it was raining again this day, so they had to wait for all of that to clear up. Now, traffic control stations were also set up at this point, and additional manpower was assigned to the operations that afternoon. And the following day, on June 18th, the first of many predictions by so-called psychics would begin to roll in. Now, don't get me wrong. If you believe in psychics and that's your sort of thing, cool, awesome. There will be no judgment from me. I think some people are gifted in that sense. However, I am going to judge the hell out of these psychics. And that's because according to some of my source material for this week's episode, these predictions would play a substantial part in search efforts. And they were not that good. Okay, they were they were not good. Um, the same evening, though, the first of many strategy meetings would be held to review search efforts and kind of discuss what further action would be taken and what direction we're going to go in. Now, June 19th, searchers would go on their first wild goose chase from these so-called psychics. So this prediction is phoned in from Linden, Michigan, and it states that Dennis would be found five miles south east from the area last seen on a stream by a waterfall that has white pine trees in the area. Now this means that Dennis is southeast when he went northwest when he disappeared. So he would have to come in almost like a full circle. Wild goose chase. So This prediction ends up coming in because the caller has a dream and she states that her dreams have come true before. So that's why she called in. Um, The Tennessee Highway Patrol is also going to join in on this day and they're going to actually take Mr. Um, Martin up in the air and they are going to fly over the search area in the helicopter and Mr. Martin is going to use a bullhorn and he's going to call out for his son and as the search efforts continue they're going to now start looking at bear and um, wild pig excrement because like I said earlier they did believe that he could have possibly possibly been eaten by a bear or eaten by feral pigs I personally don't think that that is the case because bear attacks and feral pig attacks are are not quiet. Being attacked by a wild animal is not quiet. I feel like somebody would have heard something, but I digress. Um, Trail shelter toilets are going to start being searched. Fire towers are also searched. They're checking to see if maybe Dennis took shelter in there. He's hiding in there, something. And they're also going to begin watching buzzards. They're going to watch them closely to see if maybe they could provide any clues to where Dennis's body could potentially be. Now, June 20th, 
rolls around, and this is Dennis's seventh birthday, six days after he was last seen. The National Park Service and Special Forces Unit would be involved in the search efforts, and they are going to have their second strategy meeting. And during this meeting, the searchers are going to devise two plans. Plan A is going to be for if he's found alive. Plan B is going to be for if he's found deceased. And each plan had like a detailed bullet of like five to six different bullet points on what to do. And like I said earlier, this is actually one of, if not the largest um, search and rescue mission in the National Park's history. At one point, there was 1,400 people, that's 1,400 people, would show up to search for Dennis. But unfortunately... Seven days later, on June 27th, there would only be 68 searchers that would arrive at Cades Cove to help search for Dennis. And on Sunday, June 29th, Mr. and Ms. Martin would meet with FBI agent Reich and Chief Ranger Seddon, District Ranger Morris, and Sub-District Ranger Nielsen to discuss the next steps in the investigation, including the inability to launch a full-scale investigation because the FBI um, did not believe that there was enough evidence to support the theory that he was um, kidnapped. Now, um, they also discussed the possibility of a reward, but the FBI would not be offering this reward because they would not be involved in the search. So the reward would have to come directly from the Martin family. Chief Ranger Seddon also promised the Martins that three of his best men were prepared to continue the search for the next three months. And they also discussed the time line of when Dennis went missing. Now, Mr. Martin said that he began searching within five minutes of his son disappearing. And he was very confident that there was not a lengthy amount of time between him last seeing his son and when um, he began searching. And the last thing that they discussed was how Mr. Martin felt that some people could predict things. And um, this is actually why we saw that response uh, to that prediction earlier is because Mr. Martin felt that some people had the ability to see things that were not in our realm. I mean, I guess they're kind of in our realm. I don't know. Um, but that is why we do see such a, a large um effort into that one prediction. Dennis's disappearance remains one of Tennessee's most haunting cases and then and one that still haunts retired Park Service Ranger Dwight McCarter who actually took part in the search for Dennis. Now, Dwight believes that Dennis perched in the woods back in 1969. He told Knox News that a boy of Dennis's height could have easily eluded detection and that the sounds of a roaring creek could have prevented searchers from hearing him cry out for help. He also said that in some cases, lost and scared children have actually been known to hide from searchers. 
Dwight also told Knox News Sentinel that a bear could have eaten him, which is why the bear excrement was searched. In June 1969, the typical food sources for bears were actually diminished and bears were eating food items that they wouldn't normally eat. Two weeks before Dennis and his family arrived at Spence Field, a bony and underweight bear was actually released back into the Spence Field area after it was caught in a boar trap that was baited with corn. And corn is not something that bears typically eat. Now, while the Martin family did decline to be interviewed by the Knoxville News Sentinel, the article does report that the Martin family came to believe that someone had actually taken Dennis. Dwight has kept in touch with the family over the years, and he was the one who told the reporters this. Now, the theory that Dennis was taken by someone in the woods that day seems to be the most plausible theory to me. And that's because over the weeks that the search occurred, no signs of Dennis appeared anywhere. There was no evidence of torn clothing. There was, you know, not even a shoe turned up. However, the day that Dennis disappeared, a man from Carthage, Tennessee named Harold Key was at Rowan's Creek, which is in the Sea Branch area that was downhill from where Dennis disappeared. Um, Now, he happened to hear an enormous, sickening scream coming from the woods that day. And a few minutes later, he would then see a rough-looking man um, moving stealthily and quickly through the woods and away from the area from which he heard the scream. And at first, Key thought that this guy was just a moonshiner, and he wasn't aware of the search for Dennis, so he didn't report what he had seen and heard that day immediately. He would actually, it wouldn't be for a few more days until he would return home, and that's when he would learn about the disappearance of Dennis. And news reports from around the around the time that Dennis disappeared, reported that Key said his son told him that he thought it was a bear at first, but then Lena realized that it was actually a man who was avoiding them. So it seems that the guy's Key's son is with him at this Rowan's Creek. And they notice this guy that's kind of like creeping around in the woods. And Mr. Key seems to think that it's a moonshiner. And Little Key kind of thought maybe it was a bear, but then later realizes that it's a guy because he's had behind a bush. I don't know. It's kind of confusing to me. Um, but eventually they come to the conclusion that it was a person and this person was avoiding being seen by them, which... He didn't do a very good job because he was seen. I don't know. Officials end up um, discounting this information because of the distance between Rowan Creek and Spencefield. They claim that a person couldn't have taken Dennis and carried him that far of a distance. However, Dwight McCarter, who was part of Dennis's initial search efforts, said that a physically fit man could have carried a small child between those two points. So, was this rough-looking man the guy who took Dennis? Or is it possible that Dennis got to this location on his own? I don't know. Dennis's father believed that his son was kidnapped and he was desperate for any information regarding his son's whereabouts and 
the Martin family does end up offering a reward for the their son's safe return. Now, a few le- years later, after Dennis was last seen, a man allegedly hunting ginseng um, illegally in that area came across some remains of a small child in Tremont's Big Hollow. Now, these bones included a skull and what was there was already scattered by animals. Um, So there was a skull and just a few little pieces of bones. Um, But this man ends up keeping those findings to himself for years, fearing that he was going to get in trouble. However, in 1985, this man is going to contact Dwight Carter. And that's because he knew him personally. And he's going to tell Dwight about his findings. Um, and McCarter and about 30 volunteers are going to go up and they're going to search the area. But unfortunately, they were not able to find anything. And that's because at this point, there was more than enough time for animals to destroy what was left of the remains that were originally found back in 1985. And this area that was searched was only three and a half miles downhill from where Dennis was last seen. And it's also in the same direction as the Oxford shoe print. And it's nine miles away from where the scream was heard and the man was reportedly seen. Now, is it possible that Dennis succumbed to the elements and died from exposure? Yeah, it's possible. Um... Do I believe this illegal ginseng hunter story? I don't know. I I just, I don't know. I think somebody took him, but I don't know. Um, now, it's 2002 and or somewhere around that time frame. Um, we're actually going to see that a man is searching for his birth parents. And he actually believed that he may possibly have been Dennis Martin. So he contacted park officials to explore the possibility of him being Dennis Martin. But after a quick comparison of the facts that the man knew about his life and the facts that we know about Dennis's life, um, it was ruled out that he was not Dennis. Now, it's unclear in the research why he thought that he may have been Dennis, but from what I read, um, it doesn't seem like there was any nefarious reasoning behind him reaching out. I think this guy was just searching for his birth parents and some of the facts were kind of lining up and he thought that he may have been Dennis. And I applaud him for reaching out because you never know, like it, he could have been Dennis, um, but unfortunately he's not. And the last thing that I did want to talk about was those feral cannibalistic humans um, that are allegedly living in the Smoky Mountains. Now, I'm going to attach a YouTube video by Storytelling Imperfectly Truth or Hoax series. It was pretty informative and straight to the point. Um, I enjoyed watching it, watching it, not watching it. Um, And this actually dives into the theory a little bit more about cannibalistic, inbred, feral humans that are allegedly living in the U.S. park system. I don't want to dive too much into this theory because I don't think that there are feral humans living within the park systems here in the U.S., but I do believe that there are mountain people who live up there that are just away from society and not wanting to interact with anybody and um 
you know, they're, they're just living their life. Um, do I think that those people are responsible for Dennis's disappearance? No. Do I think that there are bad people that potentially live out there that could have been responsible for his disappearance? Yes. Um, most people seem to think that he died from the elements. I, I don't know. I can't fully get behind that theory just because there's no sign of his clothing. There's no sign of his shoes with the exception of that shoe print. You know, there's just no evidence to support that Dennis is still in that area. Um, now it is possible that he is up there. Uh, you know, it, like I said earlier, it's been 53 years since, um, he went missing. And I think whatever did happen to Dennis that day is going to remain hidden in those mountains, unfortunately. Um, in storytelling imperfectly, he does dive in a lot more to, um, this theory of the cannibalistic humans that are there. And he's from the area of the Smoky Mountains that this story takes place in. Um, but he's actually from the North Carolina side and not the Tennessee side. So he's got a little bit more insider knowledge. Um, I'm originally from Pennsylvania, so I don't have much information regarding that specific area of the Appalachian Mountains. Um, and then he also does cover, um, Dennis's case on his YouTube channel. I I didn't watch that just because I didn't want to get inundated with too much information regarding the case because I was using the National Park Services, um, you know, uh, report. So I was kind of just going off of that because that was more um, straight from the source factual information uh, regarding this case. <sighs> And unfortunately, that that is the story of Dennis Martin. Um, like I said, it's been 53 years and nobody really knows what happened to him. Um, but it is it was a wild, wild case. Um, I am going to link the YouTube video by Storytelling Imperfectly, like I said earlier. Um, and if you want, you can go on his channel and find um, some more information on Dennis's uh, case. And then I am going to uh, link the rest of my sources in the show notes as always. Um, and I've said it before. I'll say it again. If you know something, say something. Um, you know, 1969 was not that long ago. Uh, my mom was nine in 1969. My dad was 10. So, you know, some of our parents were alive back then. And some of us, I know I have listeners in North Carolina and I know I have listeners in Tennessee. So if you guys know anything about this case, call me or not call me because y'all don't have my number, but write in, um, and, you know, send me a message and let me know. Let's talk about this case. If you do know anything, you can actually contact the National Park Service. Um, and they can be reached at 856-436-1200. So if you or anyone in your family has any information regarding what actually happened to Dennis Martin that day, please call in. Please write in, you know, um... With the majority of cases, you can remain anonymous. I don't really know if you can remain anonymous with contacting the Park Service, but you never know. Um, as always, thanks for listening. I hope that you guys 
join me on Facebook, you follow me on Instagram, or you shoot me an email with your case suggestions because I am all for it. Um, I do prefer to do the unsolved just because that's kind of what I'm dedicating this podcast to is just more unsolved murders and unsolved uh, missing persons cases just to try and get those families uh, the answers that that they need and that they deserve. Um, So stay spooky and be a good human and I'll see you next week.